MedCast, and welcome back. This is Gabby Joya, now fourth year medical student at OHSU. And this summer, I had the pleasure to rotate at UNC Chapel Hill. And during my time there, I got to meet Dr. Tintinelli. Um, as many of you know, she has written kind of the textbook, the gospel of emergency medicine that we all use and has been one of the pioneers of emergency medicine. A little bit about Dr. Tintinelli. She was the chair of the department and founded the UNC Emergency Department Residency Program um, back in the 1990s. She did her training in internal medicine um, and then kind of developed a profound interest in emergency medicine and did a lot of self-training to kind of guide her way into this world. So without further ado, let's get started. I'll start by telling you thank you so much for taking the time to do this. It's honestly a, a huge honor to talk with you um, and I know everyone will be really excited to hear from you so we really appreciate it. Glad to do it. And I guess I, I was hoping to just kind of start by hearing a little bit about kind of your history and residency and in internal medicine and what emergency looked like at that time. Sure. Um, like just about all of us in emergency medicine, I just like the environment. The minute that I stopped, I um, rotated through the ED. As junior medical students, we had a rotation in the trauma service, and I liked it a lot. But of course, emergency medicine didn't exist then. So I did a straight medical internship at Detroit Receiving Hospital. Really thought rather than make things up, I needed to have good credentials. I was able to work in some surgical subspecialties like ENT because I thought it was would be important to know about airway problems. So I had more of a rotating internship than straight medical, but it's still mostly medicine. Then I took a year off, and guess what I did? I worked in the ER at Receiving Hospital. So that was fun, great fun. Then um, I took some time off and went to Europe. And for about four months, I had a, a daughter by then and came back, worked back in the ER and then decided to apply for residencies in the area and wanted the best one. So I applied to Ann Arbor and got an interview and I was pregnant and I'm like, oh, I, I thought I'd never get an interview. I did and got the spot in the residency program in internal medicine. So then we moved to Ann Arbor and I actually did an additional four months after my training in cardiology because I thought it was going to be important uh, in ER to know cardiology. And I had told all the people who interviewed me that I wanted to do ER, not internal medicine, but it was okay. Then I went back to receiving and um, started a career in emergency medicine in all of its intensity. That's great. And so it's, I guess during that time, you went into an internal medicine residency program because there was not an emergency residency program that was available to you. Um, well, there were none. Bruce Janiak was exactly my contemporary. But what he did at Cincinnati, again, was work with the dean and, again, developed his own training program. Um, so I don't even know if I knew Bruce Janiak at that time. Probably I did. Probably I did. But I wasn't about to move to Cincinnati. So, And, and I felt that uh, 
you know, having credentials is really important. So it sounds like you kind of took training a little bit into your own hands by kind of pursuing the additional training in cardiology and then ENT and kind of identifying what you what you felt were important subjects and skill sets to have in emergency medicine. Is that right? Yeah, so I was able to do that, and I think that was helpful for me. And so at that time, who kind of was staffing the emergency departments? What types of, of residency training did those doctors have? Uh, none. It was basically interns from all specialties who had their assignment in the ED, and that was true throughout the country in the MD as well as the DO programs. And there was basically no faculty supervision. So you sort of uh, learn by your bootstraps and were able to call, call people if you didn't really know what to do. Even, even when I was in Ann Arbor, I remember my first, they assigned me to the ER my first shift and we have 24 on, 24 off. And the first patient I had there was a hemophiliac. Well, I had never seen that in downtown Detroit. So I'm like, I don't know what to do. There was me there and a surgical intern. None of us knew anything about it. So I, I looked up in the um, their directory and just called the chief of hematology. And he, and he was really great. And I learned then, you know, already through my experiences at Michigan at interviewing and everything and calling this individual who was actually a very famous hematologist that you shouldn't be afraid of anything. He was really great and very helpful and and he understood that I didn't know anything about the topic. So was it unusual for you all to kind of call consults at that time? Was it mainly, you know, as interns you're seeing people and trying to figure out where they need to be admitted or if they're able to go home? We mostly just did what we thought we had to do and admitted people directly. There were no obstacles to admission at that time. Anyway, that was sort of the past, and um, it's the future that I find most exciting, really. Well, I would love to hear more kind of about how it's evolved and what your vision is for the future of emergency medicine. Emergency medicine has, has evolved primarily in the scope and complexity of what we have to do in terms of the chaos confusion clinical overload lack of beds lack of mental health care a lot of that is really the same but it was easier to practice medicine and to teach it then because there wasn't much that we could do for many of the conditions that we treat now, like STEMI, stroke, even sepsis. Earlier on, internal medicine would like freak out if you started antibiotics because they wanted cultures before everything and time to decide what to give. So a lot of the treatment paradigms have certainly changed. And of course, I think that's a big challenge for emergency medicine. I think those who practice in an academic center probably have an easier time of keeping up with the changes because you're in constant contact with subspecialties, with ICU staff, with neurology and with cardiology. Um, and I think it's a bit harder for those who are not in an academic center 
where you're going to have a variety of attendings and a variety of practice patterns that you're going to have to learn from. So that's one way I think we've changed the increasing the scope. Then there are new things that we're going to have to treat that we never thought we would really do before. Substance abuse, for example, starting suboxone in the ED, um, trying to work with patients to help their addiction problems. We had a lot of that before, heroin, cocaine, whatever, but there was nothing that you did. You gave them Narcan and then they signed out and went home. So that's added a new dimension. Um, another thing that's changing, and we'll see what happens over the next five years, is perhaps the need for more facility in obstetrics training. We know that many of the community hospitals are closing their OB services. So it's diverting a lot more unexpected deliveries to the ED. So if you, when I talk to our residents who have been through OB and they have a month of OB, like nobody has ever seen a shoulder dystocia. Hmm. Um, they have not treated postpartum hemorrhage. If you work in international emergency medicine, you're going to be likely to see that, but you certainly aren't going to be seeing it in the U.S. Then, with the changes in a lot of laws regarding abortions, I wonder if we're going to be seeing a, a lot more complications of induced abortion in the ED, so we're going to have to be really aware of that so we can provide proper care. So that's just one specialty that's changing. Oncology with the immunosuppressed patients, neutropenic fever, all the problems that uh, oncology patients can face, we're, we're going to have to be more, um, more acute in our diagnostic abilities, I think. So that's certainly one way that emergency medicine is changing, just like the rest of medicine is changing. Those are all great examples. I'd love to just ask you a few questions about some of them. Um, in terms of the OB that you were just mentioning, so currently OB is not offered as a fellowship for emergency medicine. What are your thoughts on that becoming a fellowship program um, or just thoughts on fellowships in general? Well, I think fellowships are one of the cool things in emergency medicine. And you know, they were... There was a lot of antipathy among other specialists, primarily internal medicine and pediatrics, and the, even the concept of developing subspecialties in emergency medicine. The leader, you know, in that whole movement was actually David Wagner, who started emergency medicine at Medical College of Pennsylvania, now Hahnemann, now closed. Uh, because we were just beginning an ER and David's like, look, we have to start doing our subspecialties. And he started a relationship with CHOPS in Philadelphia. And when everybody else was like overwhelmed with trying to start residencies and what do we teach and how do we teach, there was David already focused on the future. So I think that gives a lot of uh, new educational exposures because we have geriatric fellowships in emergency medicine. So those fellows bring their expertise to the generalists in emergency medicine, as an example. Critical care, of course, 
really important because we need all those skills and techniques in what we do every day in the ED. And then we'll see what happens, um, whether fellowships will really be an opportunity for changing our, our practice uh, as time goes by. I mean, it's, it's pretty... Um, it's a pretty in physically and mentally intense job to work in the ED for the rest of your life. So the advantage of fellowships is that we will be able to focus our attention a little less from the extreme physical and mental needs we have to a little kind of more rational practices. So I think, I think those are great. And of course, the best part about fellowships is that it results in interaction with people who are trained in other specialties, family medicine, internal medicine, uh, anesthesiology. So I think that's important for the continued development of our specialty. Now you asked about OB. So of course I've always been in an academic center and if we have any OB problems or GYN problems, we just call OB. We either talk to them on the phone or they come down to see the patient. But then I became aware of, you know, the changes that might happen in OB delivery. So I signed up for an also course, Advanced Life Support and Obstetrics. And I actually took that in Mexico, passed it as a provider, and then did the instructor course in Asheville, North Carolina. And it was so good. First of all, a lot of that course is very, very specialized and has to do with the stages of delivery, the stages of pregnancy and delivery that are not really important for emergency medicine. But dealing with the obstetric emergencies is really important. I was, of course, the only ER doc there that was getting instructor status but the students there were a couple of EMTs there were a couple of ER docs because they felt the same way they were felt that they didn't have good training and what to do for true obstetric emergencies I actually wrote to ASAP uh, and said you know although we don't need the whole also course we should really look at getting something together for instruction for emergency physicians. Well, I I don't know what they're doing with them. I just wrote to them about six months ago. And uh, they may have put it on the back burner or they may decide it's not helpful or they may eventually break it up and uh, expand that kind of training for emergency physicians in the community. That leads me right into one of my next questions was you mentioned, you know, you're, you're at UNC, which is one of the most fantastic academic centers in the U.S. Um, so you have exposure to all of these subspecialties. What do you recommend for ER doctors who are possibly in the community, don't have the same access um, in terms of staying up to date on some of these changes and the algorithms and the policies, say, for example, for sepsis and giving antibiotics within a certain time frame and how that's all evolving. Um, how, how, you know, do you recommend seeking out some of these training courses? Do you recommend using your textbook, which is such a fantastic resource? What other kind of resources do you, do you use or do you recommend for others? Well, that is a 
topic that we talk about a lot. What is the best way to keep up? And just as everybody has their own special way of learning, uh, that probably applies to keeping up. Some check blogs. So if you want to know what's happening in critical care, you might read Scott Weingart's blogs on a regular basis. A lot of the blogs are really, really super. And I, I do, of course, check on those because it keeps you on top of what of what other emergency physicians are doing and what they're thinking about. Attending courses is important, and I think that's why we tend to have such big turnouts at ASAP and at AAEM for their educational courses. I know a lot of my colleagues who are recertifying are taking courses, uh, but that's primarily to pass the test. It's not primarily to to learn new to to learn new materials because any exams that were given in emergency medicine are always going to be a couple of years old because of the way they validate the questions so they're going to be a couple of years old in terms of you know some aspects of, of the questions so i i'm really not sure what the what the best way is i go to a lot of international meetings and I really try to listen to as many of the talks as I can that are of interest to me. And I pick up so much information. And right now for me, that's one of the ways that I learn about what's happening around the world in emergency care, new advances, new types of research. Uh, it's, it's very interesting to me. So I think it's quite variable how people are gonna pick up. We, of course, <clears throat> at the academic institutions, everybody has to have lectures, right? Mm -hmm. Five hours a week. However, we don't see individuals from the community who are participating in those lectures. And I'm trying to encourage our department to stick those on WebEx so that anyone who wants to really sign in can listen to those lectures, be that the APPs in our department or physicians in the community. Now, the other thing that's happening that's changing practice is the consolidation and the purchasing of uh, other hospitals by large health systems. And this eventually will work down to developing more efficient algorithms for care. Um, algorithms for transfer of patients where you don't have to fight when you transfer somebody from a rural hospital or a community hospital to the academic center similar ways like using the heart scale for chest pain, similar kind of concepts like having stroke codes for stroke. And that that may do a lot to kind of harmonize the way care is given across different hospitals. That's great, thank you so much. Um, I have two more questions for you. One is, can you talk a little bit about being a female and an early female in emergency medicine? Um, and if you've had any barriers that have come up, how that's kind of changed over the last few years. Um, I'm just curious what your thoughts are on that. Even starting through medical school, I never really looked around and thought, well, are there any other women here? Are we excluded, included, treating differently. I was too focused on 
learning my stuff, taking care of my patients as a medical student and then as a house officer. Um, I, honestly, I never really even thought about it. Um, <clears throat> I did, I did think. Um, actually, after I left Ann Arbor, or maybe it was in my final year of training there, I looked around and I'm like. I was like the only women woman in their internal medicine residency program at that time of all the three years. And we had one woman who was a cardiology fellow. And I'm like, well, that is strange. Well, of course, that has changed. Now, with the focus now on inclusivity and gender neutrality, I think it's easy to forget how many of the early leaders in emergency medicine were women and how welcome everybody's involvement was nobody really paid any attention and of course I had some very good role models Ron Crone being the chief of emergency at, at uh, Wayne State who was always coming up with things giving us other tasks and that was true of everybody in our, our department whether it was a man or a woman so um I'm glad to see the emphasis now on um, women focusing more on developing their careers in emergency medicine, and that really wasn't always true. Women wanted to be emergency physicians and help with the politics, but didn't really look at developing themselves in an academic medical center, and I think that's what's really changing, and that's good. My last question for you is, what advice would you have to uh, medical students, residents now entering the field, and kind of any goals or visions that you have for the future of emergency medicine that you hope are carried out? Well, looking at goals for medical students and residents are two different kinds of things. Medical students really want to get good scores on their exams <laughs> in medical school and <clears throat> select a specialty that's going to fit their personality and their needs and get in the program that they want. So for medical students, I see a lot of medical students now doing a lot of ER rotations during their senior year. And you know, I understand the importance of that because you want to make yourself known at institutions so that you have a better chance of getting in there. But what you do is you miss out on some wonderful opportunities in other subspecialties. Um, you really want to learn how to examine an eye. I mean, take a couple of weeks in ophthalmology. Do you, you know, take more intensive care, but really intensive care. Do So that's what I tend to encourage students, realizing that there are a lot of reasons that choices are made about the rotations in medical school. Now, in residency, the goals are quite different. First year, you want to get through and you want to feel confident that you at least know what you're doing. But the second and the third year, I think the clinical competencies are developing quite nicely. So the focus there is, what are you going to do for an immediate job, not for a long life job? And you really haven't asked me about locums groups, but that's what I think is one of the big changes 
in emergency medicine now. It used to be that the locums groups uh, developed because there were no rural hospitals that could attract emergency or attract any physicians. So they tended to get people just with internship or a variety of of training, but not ER docs working there. Now it's quite different. And because the finances are good, because the stresses are a little bit less, we're seeing a lot of our residents move right to locums groups. How many will stay for a long time? How many will uh, switch into academics or an independent group remains to be seen. But certainly the corporate practice of medicine is affecting all specialties, but especially emergency medicine because corporate groups are building their own medical schools. They are supporting their own residency programs and we need to make sure that their goals of academics remain foremost in the training programs. Certainly economics are very, very important, but that's a big, big change. Well, thank you so much. And any other last words of advice or any other, um, anything else that you'd like to share with us? Well, I think for all of us in emergency medicine, it, it is a great specialty. We have so many advantages and we tend sometimes to focus on the negative burnouts, working midnights, all the challenges that we have as practitioners. But I think for all of us, it's still, if you want to be a doctor, you want to make an impact on the health of the public, want to be there when patients have the most stresses and have the most needs for what is going on with them and their family in a, in a time of severe illness, ER is still the best specialty there is. 